Welcome to Casting Hope, a sermon podcast of Hope Presbyterian Church in Columbus, Ohio. My name is Joe Hack, lead pastor at Hope, and we are so glad you're listening in wherever you are. In this moment of social distancing, we hope that our audio and streaming resources meet you where you are at and help you stay connected to God and to His promises. We are continuing our Summer Psalm series. And so you know, in a month, we will be beginning a brand new sermon series, uh, walking through the entire book of James, the book of James. And this will coincide with what we like to call the Columbus New Year, uh, not the calendar New Year, but the Columbus New Year, because the Columbus New Year, frankly, is when uh, when it's uh, moving week for Ohio State. And so we are excited to coordinate a new sermon series um, on the uh, late August. But for now, we are focusing on what are called the Psalms of Praise. The Psalms of Praise. Now, in one sense, all 150 Psalms in the book of Psalms are praising the Lord. But there are a handful that are called Psalms of Praise because by design, these Psalms urge us and urge the people of God to praise God. And this morning we're looking at Psalm 145. Now, a couple interesting things before we read this Psalm together about this Psalm. First, Psalm 145 will be the last Psalm written by David in the book of Psalms. That's just interesting to know. But secondly, David wrote this Psalm as an acrostic. Now, show of hands, who remembers from poetry class what an acrostic is? Anybody? Okay, good. An acrostic is when the first line of a poem spells something out. And in this case, Psalm 145, a word isn't spelled out, but the entire Hebrew uh, alphabet. And this is just a good reminder that the Psalms are indeed poetic. It's a good reminder, actually, and it's no small thing that God doesn't just speak propositions to his people. He speaks poetry to his people. Because what does that mean? What does that fundamentally say about the character of the God we praise? It means that God wants relationship. He wants all of us. He wants more than our brains. He wants our hearts. He speaks to us in a way that engages more than our brains, but also our hearts. And so let me just read Psalm 145. I invite you to follow along. We'll pray and we'll ask God uh, to uh, to speak to us this morning through his word. This is Psalm 145, God's word, a song of praise of David. I will exalt you, my God and King, and bless your name forever and ever. Every day I will bless you and praise your name forever and ever. Great is the Lord and greatly to be praised and greatness His greatness is unsearchable. One generation shall commend your works to another and shall declare your mighty acts. On the glorious splendor of your majesty and on your wondrous works, I will meditate. They shall speak of the might of your awesome deeds and I will declare your greatness. They shall pour forth the fame of your abundant goodness and shall sing aloud your righteousness. The Lord is gracious and merciful, slow to anger, and abounding in steadfast love. The Lord is good to all, and his mercy is over all that he has made. All your works shall give thanks to you, O Lord, and all your saints shall bless you. They shall speak of the glory of your kingdom and tell of your power to make known to the children of men your mighty deeds and the glorious splendor of your kingdom. Your kingdom is an everlasting kingdom, and your dominion endures throughout all generations. 
The Lord is faithful in all his words and kind in all of his works. The Lord upholds all who are falling and raises up all who are bowed down. The eyes of all look to you and you give them their food in due season. You open your hand. You satisfy the desire of every living thing. The Lord is righteous in all his ways and kind in all his works. The Lord is near to all who call on him, to all who call on him in truth. He fulfills the desire of those who fear him and also hears their cry and saves them. The Lord preserves all who love him, but all the wicked he will destroy. My mouth will speak the praise of the Lord and let all flesh bless his holy name forever and ever. And so, Lord, with the words of my mouth, but with the meditation of all of our hearts here this morning, be pleasing and acceptable to you. You are our rock. You are our redeemer. And Lord, would you, by your Holy Spirit, open the eyes of our hearts so that we would not just learn information, but that we would actually see Jesus. And that our hearts would sing and praise and bless his name. We ask this in the name of Jesus. Amen. Well, when I was uh, learning to drive, my dad taught me a trick to never run out of gas. I remember it. He would point to my fuel gauge and he would say, if you treat, Joe, the half tank marker as the empty tank marker, you will never run out of gas. And this was a trick, apparently, that my dad learned from his dad. And I must say, it's a simple but brilliant trick. And I even recommend it to you all. But the problem is, I never do it. <laughs> I don't. Uh, my wife would point out that I'm one of the only people she knows that has run out of gas on the road while driving. Not just once and learned my lesson, <laughs> but sadly, multiple times. And sadly, I know what it's like to sort of walk to a gas station. Anybody else? Uh, I know what it's like to walk to a gas station and buy two things. Uh, not only gas, but a, a plastic can to carry that gas to my stalled out car in the middle of a turning lane. And I wish I could tell you uh, this has happened for understandable reasons. But if I'm brutally honest, the reason I ran out of gas is because I didn't want to stop and get gas. Okay, that's it. In those moments, I notice a low tank, I notice an empty tank, I notice a below empty tank, and I say to myself, this can wait until next time. Surely this can wait until next time. And it's embarrassing to admit it, but the core reason I've run out of gas is because I don't feel like stopping to fill up, even though it's an urgent need, even though there are lights on my dash telling me so. I don't feel like it, okay? I don't feel like it. Here's the title of a recent article that gets to this problem. Why do we resist things that we know are good for us? So Dr. Shannon Connery is a psychologist and she asks the same question. Do you ever resist something you know would be good for you? And she goes on to talk about how we resist things like exercise or eating well even though we know it's good for us. 
There seems to be something, I think, hardwired in our souls that somehow resists what we most need. But if it's not hardwired, it is now because of the fall. Our fall into sin. So we know we're lost, but we resist asking for directions. We know we're sick, but we resist going to the doctor. We know we're in a serious rut, but we resist seeking counsel. Our tank is empty, but we keep driving. And I think we do this with God as well. We only praise God when we feel like it. And most of the time, we don't feel like it. But if we only praise God when we feel like it, that would be like only filling up our tanks with gas when we feel like it. You'd be pulling a Joe Hack in those moments. Our hearts are like engines designed to run on praise. Without praise, it's just a matter of time we'll be in the middle of the turn lane with our flashers on. See, sometimes praise is spontaneous. It's like um, when we're watching sports and we sort of jump out of our chairs and we we start shouting and hugging and and, and high-fiving one another, high-fiving strangers if we're in the actual arena. Uh, That is sort of a spontaneous praise. We can't help but do it. We don't even think consciously that we're doing it. It just happens. And I think that is what will happen when we see Jesus face-to-face, when we're no longer looking through a mirror uh, or a glass dimly. And it happens sporadically in our life because because we just sort of see Jesus for who he really is and we spontaneously praise him. But a lot of time in this fallen world, praise must be cultivated. It must be filled into our empty tanks. We praise, in other words, precisely because we don't want to praise. Do you see? And we see this in the Psalms all over the place. In fact, David has to fight for it. He addresses his sluggish soul in Psalm 103. At the very beginning, he says famous words, Bless the Lord, O my soul. He's sort of preaching to himself. He's sort of filling his own tank with gas in that moment. He's addressing his soul. And I think we see this also in our psalm this morning. A cultivated praise, a sort of purposed praise or a resolute praise. He says in verse 1, if you take a look again at the text, he says, I will exult, extol you, my God and King, and bless your name forever and ever. Every day I will bless you and praise your name forever and ever. It's a resolution almost here. And then if you jump to verse 10, all your works shall give thanks to you, O Lord, and all your saints shall bless you. In verse 21, my mouth will speak the praise of the Lord and let all flesh bless his holy name forever and ever. So notice here that praise is active. It's not passive. Notice here that this psalm teaches us uh, to cultivate praise, what I'll call the habit of hallelujah, the habit of hallelujah. Hallelujah means From the Hebrew, praise the Lord. Hallelujah is not a suggestion. As Alan Adams actually said to me a few weeks ago, he said, praise the Lord is an intentional action. So often in the Psalms, it's a hallelujah habit. And I see that in Psalm 145, but that's only four verses. It's Psalm 145. Out of 21, four letters out of the Hebrew alphabet. 
See, this psalm does more than just tell us to cultivate the habit of hallelujah. And I want to talk about that a bit. But the rest of the psalm shows us how. How we can precisely do that. The hallelujah habit, in other words, has two movements I want to work through with you guys this morning. And the first movement is recounting the majesty of God. And the second movement is recounting what I'll call the mercy or the merciful character of God. His majesty and his mercy. Our king is not just great, he is good. And we can recount these aspects or these characteristics of God or the things that he's done. And when we do that, we are indeed praising God. We're remembering who God is and what he has done. The hallelujah habit involves no less. So Bible scholar John Goldingay, he points out that this psalm oscillates between two characteristics of God, his greatness and his goodness. And so look down at the text again. After the first two verses, which is sort of, again, the hallelujah habit. Hey, praise the Lord, praise the Lord, praise the Lord. You see, starting in verse 3, A praising of what? His greatness. Great is the Lord and greatly to be praised. And his greatness is unsearchable. And that continues on through verse 6. And then verses 7 through 9, what do we sing about? We sing about the goodness of God. There's a pivot. They shall pour forth the fame of your abundant goodness. And then after another reminder in verse 10 to praise the Lord... The next half of this psalm, or this psalm, does the same thing. Verses 11 through 13 is about what? Take a look. The glory and the greatness of his kingdom and of his reign. And then you see, immediately after, in verse 14, it's about what? His goodness, his mercy. So in other words, the way that we cultivate the hallelujah habit is by purposefully recounting the uniqueness of the God we praise. We say praise the Lord, and it's not just any Lord. He is majestic, and he is merciful. And I want to look just briefly at both of those themes. First, his majesty. His majesty. We cultivate the habit of hallelujah precisely because God is majestic. He is the king. Verse 1. I will extol you, my God and king. And then look at verses 3 through 6 again. Great is the Lord and greatly to be praised. And his greatness is unsearchable. One generation shall commend your works to another. And that other generation, by the way, is us. And everyone before us. And everyone after us. Who calls on the Lord. And they shall, like us, declare your mighty acts. On the glorious splendor of your majesty and on your wondrous works. I will meditate. They shall speak of the might of your awesome deeds. And I will declare your greatness. And then after weaving in his goodness, which we'll talk about in a moment, his greatness continues in verse 11. So pick up with me, verse 11. And they shall speak of the glory of your kingdom and tell of your what? Your power to make known to the children of man what? Your mighty deeds, the glorious splendor of your kingdom. Your kingdom is an everlasting kingdom and your dominion endures throughout all generations. This is, this is a mighty God. In verse 20, we see that this mighty God even has the power to destroy the wicked. Might, glory, power, dominion. This adds up to something about God. It says something about God. And I think verse 2 says it best. Take a look. We see that the greatness of God, the greatness of God, 
is unsearchable. And that's verse 3. Great is the Lord and greatly to be praised. And his greatness is unsearchably great. Maybe uh, over the pandemic, you watched the Netflix documentary, The Last Dance, about the Chicago Bulls. Anybody? Anybody watch that? Uh, And for many, it probably reopened the great goat debate. Greatest of all time. In the NBA, who is the greatest of all time? Jordan, LeBron, Kobe. I know, I know some of you have strong opinions about this who are sitting right in front of me. And full disclosure, I'm a Jordan guy. And that's probably because I'm an elder millennial who grew up with Jordan. Okay? But the fact that we even have this debate says something about our souls. We all love greatness. We love debating greatness. We're attracted to greatness. We're magnetized to greatness. We seek great food. We seek great hikes, great films, great music. We seek great teams, great artists, great teachers, great leaders, great examples. We're hardwired to be in awe of greatness, great people and great things. But in every case that I just mentioned, we're talking about relative greatness. And what we have here in this psalm is absolute greatness. Verse 3 says that God is great, and then verse 3 qualifies that statement by saying, and by the way, this kind of greatness we're talking about is a greatness that cannot, cannot be grasped fully in your heart at all. It is an unsearchable greatness. One scholar writes, God's achievements are not merely monumental, but immensely so. So immense that we could not get our minds around them. Now, I said earlier, we had a little poetry discussion about acrostics. Remember that? And we mentioned that this poem is an acrostic that has the alphabet. What I didn't mention is that there is one missing letter in Psalm 145. Scholars wonder if this line was lost in transmission or if it was on purpose. And I agree with the Old Testament scholar Alec Moyer who believes it is clearly on purpose. Why? It's a poem. It's a song. And Moyer points out that the Hebrew poets often put what they're trying to say above the form in which they're saying it. What a beautiful way to say that God's greatness, his, his greatness cannot be spelled out even with human words. Our letters simply are insufficient and run out. They cannot exhaust his greatness. He is unsearchably great. Our king is majestic. And so praise is fitting for a majestic king. But that's not the only word used to describe God in this psalm. The king is majestic, but he's also merciful. He's unsearchably great, but he is unbelievably good. This psalm spends as much time rehearsing his goodness as his greatness. So look at verse 7. Verse 7 makes the pivot from abundant greatness to abundant goodness. They shall pour forth the fame of your abundant goodness. They shall sing aloud of your righteousness. And then we encounter the most quoted passage in the Old Testament. This is how God reveals himself to Moses. When Moses says, show me your glory, which is a giant ask, right? Uh, God reveals himself. He says, okay, I will answer this this request. And so I just want want to read it again 
And just let it sink in because familiarity here is against us. We've heard this before. We've sung this before. But allow this self-testimony from God himself to just sink in. The Lord is gracious. Okay, this mighty, great God that we just got done talking about. When he opens his mouth to say, what am I like? What does he say? He says, I am gracious. And merciful. I'm slow to anger. I'm abounding in steadfast love. Committed, dogged, stubborn. I will not let you go, love. Like when I'm walking my dog and my dog just runs in the opposite direction, what do I do? Let him go? No. I stand there like a rock. And he can't go anywhere. That's Hesed love. That's stubborn love. That is steadfast love. And that is what God says about himself. Himself. This reminds me of Jesus uh, telling his disciples that he is gentle and lowly in heart. In these instances, we're not just guessing what God is like. We're not just wishing what God is like here. God is saying what God is like. That's a good thing. God says, I am gracious, I am merciful, I am slow to anger, I'm abounding in steadfast love. And then we sing on in verse 9, the Lord is good to all, and his mercy is over all that he has made. And then David weaves in God's greatness again, but returns to goodness part 2, starting in verse 14. And I'll just read it again, and I just encourage you to place yourself in the text, okay? Let's let poetry do what poetry is supposed to do. I want to slowly read the rest of this psalm. But as I do so, I just want you, again, to place yourself in the text. I'll ask it, where are you in this text? And then what is God's posture toward you? I want to read this. And I want to encourage you to do that. Do whatever it takes to, to really place yourself in the text. The Lord upholds all who are fallen. And raises up all who are bowed down. The eyes of all look to you. And you give them their food in due season. You open your hand. You satisfy the desire of every living thing. The Lord is righteous in all his ways. And kind. And kind. The Lord is kind. The Lord is kind in all his works. The Lord is near to all who call on him. To all who call on him in truth. He fulfills the desire of those who fear him. He also hears the cry and saves them. The Lord preserves all who love him, but all the wicked he will destroy. My mouth will speak the praise of the Lord and let all flesh bless his holy name forever and ever. 
This is the goodness of God. He is great. He is great. He is the Lord. But how does he hold his greatness? The Lord is strong, unspeakably strong. How does he use his strength? The Lord here is powerful. How does he use his power? He uses it to lift, to uphold, to satisfy, to answer, to hear, to save, to preserve. Who? The low, the humble. Those who know their need. Those who who do not have resources. The marginalized who can indeed know their, their need for the Lord. God in his greatness is not so high that he overlooks the lowly. Jesus so identifies with the lowly. What does he say when he reveals his heart to his disciples? He says, I am lowly. And we would be tempted to read about the greatness of God in this psalm, and we'd be tempted to think that God is so transcendently great that he has nothing to say or do about my life. Or nothing to say or do about injustice or wickedness that reigns and that we read about in this psalm. He's just so other. He's like the watchmaker who sort of makes the watch and then steps back and lets it tick. But this psalm sings of a way better God, a God who is great, but a God who is good, a God who is transcendent, but a God who is also imminent and near. God who is high and lifted up and unapproachable light and yet lowly so that he does not miss your pain. This summer, while my family was on vacation in northern Michigan, we randomly ran into a speedboat gathering, as one does. And uh, we, we were eating dinner in a tiny town on Lake Charlevoix in a town called Boyne City, Michigan. And when we were living, uh, leaving this place that we were eating at, the server told us to check out the speedboats at the dock. Apparently every year, she went on to tell us, people come from all over the world to this small lake town to see and to show off their speedboats. And when we walk down to the docks, uh, my boys love this, uh, there are these boats that look like the Batmobile, for lack of better reference, like sitting on the water. And they were kind of painted like the Batmobile, too. It was kind of a thing. I was a little surprised by that. If I owned a speedboat, I would make it look different. I would just say that. But, I, but they are hard to miss. And it reminds me of a distinction that the author Andy Crouch makes that I've shared before with you all. It's the distinction between speedboats and tugboats. Speedboats and tugboats. And he says, both are immensely powerful. If you're in the water with either of those things, uh, they're so unbelievably great, you must respect them. Like, you don't have an option. You don't. If you're on your dinghy and the boat and a tugboat or a speedboat comes, you're getting out of the way. It, it demands your respect. But how does one use its power? Well, one uses it for show and for speed. To create a wake that impresses others. 
And the other, quietly, unceremoniously, uses its immense power to serve, to help, to notice. Oh, you're a a boat that needs help? Let me help you. Let me use my immense power to bring you to the slip. What, you ran out of gas? (laughs) Do not put me on a boat. That would be really dangerous. Let me help you. Let me rescue you and use my immense power to help to serve. See, that's the God we praise, a God who is powerful, immensely so, unbelievably great, beyond imagining, but gracious beyond believing. God is both majestic and merciful. If God was only majestic, uh, he would be powerful enough to save us, but he probably wouldn't if that was all he was. Because we're, we're too sinful, or he's too aloof. On the other hand, if God was only merciful, but not powerful, not majestic, he would be willing and wanting to save us, but he would not be powerful enough to make it happen. In the first case, his might is not merciful, and in the second case, his mercy is not mighty. But we praise a God who is merciful and mighty. We praise a God whose greatness is demonstrated in his goodness and whose goodness is demonstrated in his greatness. We praise a God who is king, but unlike every king who has ever lived, we don't, who doesn't use his dominion to dominate, but instead to deliver. Notice that David, this is David's psalm, King David's psalm, relativizes himself under this king of all. In verse 1, he extols the true king, even as he is king of Israel. And he says, I extol you, king. And this whole psalm is an extended meditation, really, on the kingship of God. And who is that true king? But we discover it's Jesus. I mean, Jesus is the true king here, right? Who defeats his and our enemies by dying on the cross for us. Who uses his power not to exploit, but to save who uses his immensity to be lowly. The cross of Jesus, think about that, proclaims the might and the mercy of God in fullness, God's might which demands payment for our wickedness, which we even sang of in this psalm. But the cross proclaims God's mercy where Jesus says, I will gladly pay. And his mercy extends to whom? ever knows their needs. All of you to receive this mighty and merciful king, all you need to do is receive him. I mean, verses 13 through 20, which we read, that is your resume. That's the resume God requires. Falling, bowing, dependence, hunger, need, all crying out. If you know your need, And if you're crying out to him this morning, you can be assured that he will use his might for mercy, his greatness for good, his power for your perseverance to help you take one more step 
today and tomorrow. So let's let this psalm teach us how to cultivate the habit of hallelujah, the habit of hallelujah. We praise a God who is majestic and merciful. So we remind ourselves of this every single moment. And I want to, as we close, just consider with you and even ask some questions with you about how we could cultivate this habit of hallelujah. What would it look like for you to do this? To not just wait for the spontaneous praise, but to cultivate the resolute praise of this mighty and merciful God. How would you embed hallelujah into your daily life? Not just when you feel like it, but especially when you don't feel like it. Well, this psalm tells us in verse 2, every day, every day, praise the Lord. Or in the paraphrase of Eugene Peterson, I'll bless you every day and keep it up from now until eternity. That's a resolute hallelujah. That's a habit of hallelujah. The word all and every, if you just glance over this psalm, it pops up a lot. All, every, all, every, all, every. It's just all over the place. So that one interpreter says this points to the all-embracing nature of worship. And so let me ask, how can worship or praise or hallelujah sort of embrace or hug all of your life? Like, how can you draw a circle of hallelujah that's big enough to include everything that you do in your life? One idea, I think, is to embrace liturgy as a way of life. The truth of the matter is that humans are liturgical. And we might reserve hallelujah to liturgy, right? That might be our temptation, our default setting is to say, I sing hallelujah, I say hallelujah in the context of a worship gathering. And that is good and right and appropriate. And it's what we do every Sunday. It's what we do in our home groups. But what if we saw liturgy as not just something we do as we gather, but something we do as David tells us to do every day, every day, every moment, all embracing way of life. Because the truth of the matter is we are liturgical. We live our lives according to patterns and habits. Or daily liturgies like this one. Like this one. Our whole life is basically one of these. I'm guessing when you wake up, there's something you do. I'm guessing there's something you do after that. And then there's something you do after that. I'm guessing there's a lot of things we do on this piece of paper called our life that are habitual, that are patterned, that have developed over time a deep rut or a deep pathway. And some of those pathways are life-giving and, and amazing, and some of those pathways we can admit are destructive. So I just want to encourage you to think about your life as a daily liturgy, like brushing teeth, making bed, making meals, checking phones, all these things apply. And these patterns that we've developed shape us. And so it's best to just admit it, admit it, admit it, notice it, and then use that dynamic that God built into us for good. So Tish Warren has a book called Liturgy of the Ordinary, subtitles amazing, Sacred Practices for Everyday Life. And she encourages the reader to embed praise into the most ordinary things that we can do every day, like making our bed. Douglas McKelvey creates a resource called Every Moment Holy. Two volumes now where it embeds praise and prayer into the most mundane events in your life that you can think of, like starting a new book or ending a good book. Getting a new pet, 
your morning coffee or tea. Consider hallelujah as a habit. Maybe read and reread this psalm and breaks throughout your day. Or maybe begin your day with Psalm 51.15. That's easy to remember because it's 5115. 51.15, you probably heard it. Lord, open my lips and my mouth will proclaim your praise. In fact, this prayer from Psalms has become, for the global church across millennia, the way many Christians start their day. We could do the same. Lord, open open my lips and my mouth will proclaim your lips. I love that prayer because it's a prayer that God loves to answer. Lord, my last thing I want to do this morning is praise you, but open my my mouth and I'll do it. And God loves to answer that praise. He'll open your mouth and your heart to praise him when you admit your need. And he will open the eyes of our hearts to see his majesty that day. And yes, his mercy. So, Lord, we do pray that we would, from this time forth, view hallelujah as a habit. Not a begrudging habit, but a gift that you would give us as your people. We want to place ourselves before your greatness and your goodness every moment. Show us the way, Lord, we ask in Jesus' name. Amen. Thanks for tuning in. For more information about our church and for more resources like this, visit our website at hopechurchcolumbus.org.